Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Rodina Asban, here with my friend, Chabruta Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yuma, daf Ayin Dalid, page 74. Before we begin our final parak of this Masachet, which is hard to believe that we've come to that, which actually starts on the previous uh, daf on Ayin Gimel, uh, we have a lovely dedication today. Uh, today's daf is dedicated to, uh, by Jason Kadoff to his wife, Robin Kadoff, in honor of their anniversary. Um, he wanted me to read the following. This episode is dedicated to Robin Kadoff by her husband, Jason, in honor of our anniversary. Thank you for inspiring me to join you on this daily journey through Dafyomi. This is just one of the many ways you've made me a better person every day for the last 20 years. So today we celebrate you, Robin, and you, Robin, and Jason together uh, for your partnership of 20 years your chavruta together, uh, and we wish you many, many more years of health, happiness, and learning together. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. How beautiful. And um, thank you for joining us every day. Um, okay, I'm going to now begin our eighth parak, our final parak. You'll note that this is very similar to what happened in Masachat Psachim, right, where we had the first nine prakim there were about Korban Pesach and the, and the meal of the Korban Pesach, and everything that pertained to the Beit HaMikdash and the Pesach. And then in the last parak, we got what I would call, you know, the the generational Pesach, what happens to Lidorot for, for the future generations. And so too here. And we've been talking about the Avodah and the in Yom Kippur and the Beit HaMikdash, you know, for seven chapters here. And we've had some tangents, sure, but for the most part, that's what the focus is. And now, finally, in the eighth parak, we turn to the generational Yom Kippur, right? What happens for the generations? We're the generations, meaning our experience of Yom Kippur is now finally going to be found in these pages. Here, here, Dana, you can you can begin your philosophy already in terms of you know what we know and what our experience of of Yom Kippur. So I'm going to read the Mishnah and then we'll we'll see where it takes us. It's it takes us in interesting directions, I believe. Manitin. Yom Kippur, Yom HaKippurim, excuse me, Yom HaKippurim, Asur Ba'achila, Uvishtia, Uvrichitza, Uvisicha, Uvinilata Sandal, Uvetashmisha Mita. So Yom Kippur, there's, there's these five Inuyim, right? Or we'll just call them the Inuyim. The list is a little bit interesting when how you do the count. We, it's prohibited to eat, drink, wash, anoint. Nowadays, we often talk about that as perfume, but then it was using oils, I guess, as a, you know, smearing it into your skin. Uvenilata sandal, wearing leather, uvetashmishamita, marital, conjugal, sexual relations. All of this is prohibited. Vamelach vakala, your chutzuit penehem. The king and a bride should wash their faces, um, where these are the people for whom appearance apparently counts absolutely the most. Vachaya tin ol et sandal. And a woman after childbirth, meaning a woman who has just given child, just given birth, um, can wear shoes. Again, the presumption here is leather shoes, right? Um, if if she needs to, she she has a, an excuse, right, so to speak, in that she has just come through childbirth, and therefore, if not wearing her proper shoes would be causing her pain, she can go about in the regular leather shoes. Dive Rebbe Lezer, that's Rebbe Lezer's position. V'chachamim osrin. The the sages prohibit the this last little list, right, for the king, for the bride, for the woman after childbirth. These are the these are prohibited by Chachamim. Okay, and then the Mishnah continues. Ha'ochel kikotevet hagasa, which is already an interesting measurement. We'll talk about why in a moment. One who eats the amount of a large date, that amount of food, 
כמוה וכגרעינתה, והשוטה מלוא לוגמיו, somebody who drinks the amount of filling his cheeks with liquid, חייב. Here we get a measurement for how much one would eat to be חייב, to be culpable for the punishment of eating, or in this case drinking, on Yom Kippur. And we know, of course, that the punishment for eating or drinking Yom Kippur is correct. Um, the excommunication or the being cut off in death. You know, there, we've, we've talked in the past about several different options for what curry might entail, but it is the single most um, extreme punishment outside of mitat beitin, outside of being put to death by the beitin. Um, if you eat, you know, a bite of this and a bite of that, it will still come together to make this one unit of volume. And the same thing would be true of drinking, which is a little bit interesting as well, because if you're drinking from different, uh, you know, different sips, let's say, how does that come together to be male lugmav, which is the malom lugmav, which is a measurement assessed by how, by the fact that you have liquid in your mouth. Um, so to have it in, in separate bites or drinks, sips, whatever, seems to be a little bit, Unusual. But the food and the drink together do not come together to make either a kotevit or or malolugmav, um, because each one would have its own liability. They don't come together to form a, com- a collective liability of eating and drinking. It's not eating and drinking. Either you're violating eating and also violating drinking, or you're not. Okay, so this is, you know, this is the basis of the Kipper that we know. With the with the inuyim, with the sufferings that we're supposed to do, here, Dan, I know you're going to talk about that shortly, um, and <clears throat> and this is the essence of the day. The Gemara says right away, "What are you talking about? Asur, asur, meaning prohibited, because the Mishnah had said prohibited. Anush kareti. We're talking about, you know, a, a fatal punishment that shouldn't just be prohibited. Amar Rabbi Ela, Vitem Rabbi Yirmiya, Lo Nitzchacha El Lachatzi Shior." And the Gemara here says what we're really talking about here, meaning something that is prohibited and therefore is in the category, let's say, of lashes and not in the category of karate, is the amount of if you would have a chatzishior. Now, generally speaking, when we talk about eating, we usually drinking also, we generally speak about for eating, we talk about the amount of a kazayat. Sometimes we talk about the amount of a kabetza, like the amount of an olive or like the amount of an egg. And for drinking, the amount is a revit. Um, think about your average Kiddush cup, and you you can envision, you know, at least one vision, one version, or an, a, a part of the debate over exactly how much revit would be. But that's your basic Kiddush cup. Meaning that this is the amount. These are the amounts that we know all the time. For Yom Kippur, the amounts are different because, on the one hand, the kukotevet, the dried fig here, is a larger size than the kazayit. Usually, you say you have a kazayit if you ate a kazayit of pork. Right then, you would get lashes for having eaten pork, right? But here we're saying you eating a kukotevet of food, you be chayev karet. But the Mishnah here is talking about a chatzishior. So if you had half of the kukotevet, that amount, that's when you would in- incur lashes. And likewise, malay lugmav. Again, it gets a little bit tricky in terms of how do you measure half of malay lugmav. Um, but the concern would be that under those circumstances, you're not reaching the violation that entails karate, but you might still be getting under the full terms of, you know, warning and witnesses and everything like that, that you would get lashes. Okay, so, and and this is discussed, you know, to some, to some extent 
um, by the Rishonim and the entire question of what is prohibited by Torah law versus what is prohibited by rabbinic law really is in full relief here um, when we're talking about the degree of punishment. Meaning the bottom line is don't eat or drink on Yom Kippur. But this is exactly where this question of what we talk about all the time of doing shiurim, right? Somebody who is pregnant or nursing or ill in some other way or frail, infirm, can't fast well. There's all kinds of cases where, you know, with proper medical care, a person and proper rabbinic care, I understand, would be told to eat or drink according to shiurim, meaning have less than the amount of a shiur in a certain amount of time. And that's how you, the person would ingest enough food to make it through Yom Kippur without ever coming to the point of violating the curry situation. So this is exactly what, where that comes from. Um, and, you know, for some people, that is <laughs> that is the essence of Yom Kippur, to make sure that they do not ever hit the point of doing a shear, as opposed to some other people who are, you know, who might be easy fasters and are in shul all day and don't have to worry about the precision here. Okay. Um... Okay, once we're talking about a half measure, right, the, the Gemara gets into this whole question of how is it that you could be liable for for hand, for for participating in these things anyway if you would violate them, right? The claim is that every person, all of B'nai Israel, all Jews, were standing at Harsinon, at Mount Sinai, and in being at Mount Sinai, we basically took an oath that we would keep the Torah. And so that any time we break the Torah, we're breaking that oath as well. So this becomes an important discussion um, because the question of, you know, to what extent could you have forbidden foods under any circumstances? And I don't want to read it all inside because we have so much to do. It's a long daf, actually, besides the fact that we're, you know, beginning on the previous daf. Um, but what happens is that the Gemara then veers into a discussion of who is eligible to give testimony. And we've talked about this a bit in the past, and we're not going to talk about it greatly now, but there's obviously a discussion about, because we've mentioned this before, about whether women can give testimony. There's uh, issues about relatives giving testimony, right? There's plenty of ways a person could become disqualified. And Rav Papa here talks about how the Mi'ute Melech, it comes to exclude a king, right? Because because of the, the dynamic between the court and the king, um, so the king is knocked out of from, you know, once he's a king, he's knocked out from the role of being able to give testimony because of mixing and matching. I think we would call this checks and balances if you're thinking about American government. And then we come to this interesting, it's not a sidebar, it's really talking about who's eligible to give testimony, but from an, it was intriguing to me that it, because it comes alive in a very specific way. One moment, I will explain. Rav Achabar Yaakov Amar Bakubia. This, this, it's not a mission here. Um, excludes some those who um, play with dice from being eligible to give testimony. Now, nowadays we might talk about this in the context of gambling, right? Like you might not be considered reliable if you are in the throes of being a gambler. Um, a Sheikh Bakubia is someone who plays with dice, and the Gemara here says, But from a Doraita, from a Torah perspective, can't the person who plays with dice, can't that person give testimony? The answer is yes. The rabbinic, it's a rabbinic level. This is what we're talking about. I said that the whole, the whole discussion here is this dance between what's the Torah level and what's the rabbinic level. So because the sages have disqualified such a person from, from giving testimony, then 
they're going to make sure that he can't take an oath of testimony, right? Because be, that's a Torah law requirement, but because he's testif- is testif- his testifying is um, prohibited or whatever, not accepted by rabbinic law, we're not going to put him in a position of then taking an oath by the Torah law because they're not going to listen to him anyway. One of the reasons I wanted to mention this case of these people who would play with dice is that there were archaeological finds of actual ancient Roman dice that look really exactly like our dice today from any you know, board game that has dice. Um, they're made of you know, stone, I guess, or ivory maybe, not from, um, not from plastic or whatever, but the gaming aspect of it is really the same. And I mentioned this, I'm, we're going to um, send her a, a video, and we'll put it on the Facebook page and so on, um, of Tehila Lieberman, who's an archaeologist, whom I happen to know, who has this really very interesting video of exactly how they discovered in archaeological dig, they discovered dice. And you know, how little times have changed. And when we think about who's eligible to give testimony, what you look for in somebody who's going to be authoritative and respected in their in their ability as a witness is, again, somebody who's going to be reliable. And the claim that somebody who is in the throes of gambling, um, it doesn't just mean a, kid, a kid's game, right? It means somebody who is a habitual dice player. Um, I guess now we'd call that craps, right? Like this is, this is really... Um, these are these are formal games that are they're gambling games. So anyway, it's a sidebar from the Yom Kippur issue, but it puts into the, it puts into relief this idea of um, again the Torah law versus rabbinic, and also who's eligible. Um, one more thing, here, Dan, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, which is just this idea that the very fact that we get karate here, we you can only um, incur a karate punishment if it is certain, right, that you have done this violation. And so there's a whole big discussion here about, uh, first of all, how do we know that it's punishable by karate? Where is that from, that these activities from the Mishnah are exactly what is punishable by karate? And then what if somebody is in a state of doubt, right? If there's a question of whether the person has actually done any of these activities or to what degree, and then even if somebody is going to be punished punished and maybe held accountable by God, we still don't presume that there will be karate involved because it is too extreme of a punishment. There's never like karate from suffake, right? It's too, it's only when everything is really aligned to say this person is truly guilty. Um, yeah, a lot of really good stuff. Um, I think just for the sake of time today, we'll do a little bit less discussion, but just to circle back to the Mishnah, you know, just really it's so interesting to see and this gets into the piece i'm going to read that we just spent seven prakim talking about everything we don't do on on yom kippur and just sort <laughs> it's of, true. but remember when the amurayim when well when the mishnah was redacted right rabbi hudanasi records the mishnah and even when the gemara gets recorded by rabbi Ashi, um this by ravashi you know they're already not practicing it that way so it's interesting, you know, it'd be one thing to say if the people who were writing the Mishnah and the Gemara were recording it as they did it. But just keep in mind, they're doing it as they hoped it would be. Um, and there's much, much left, less time, really just a pair spent on. And you'll even see some of the Mishnayos don't even deal with Yom Kippur, uh, you know, dealing with, you know, what I think we all associate what Yom Kippur uh, really is. So the Gemara here in Amud Bet spends a very interesting 
chunk of time talking about the concept of Inui, right? What does it mean, right, of Ta'anu ad Nafshotechem, that your souls should be afflicted, that we should afflict our souls? And it begins with this, Brisa, Tanu Rabbanan, Ta'anu ad Nafshotechem, right? You shall afflict your souls, which is quoting Vayikra, chapter 16, verse 29, which again is the parak that has the avoda of Yom Kippur. And so it basically does this teaching, which says, look, one could say that maybe what Inui means affliction or causing affliction is you have to go out of your way, right, to do something. So either sit in, you know, sit in the sun or sit in the cold, do something to make yourself uncomfortable. And then it says, no, the second half of the Pasuk, right? The Pasuk is saying, you shouldn't do any labor, right? So it's just saying, just says labor is, is you know, sort of you sit back and don't do it. It's an abstention from something. That is what affliction is like too. It's an abstention, right? From eating, drinking, and all these other things that's listed, but it's not something that you actively have to do itself. And then the Gemara goes on, you know, to talk a little bit more about this, you know, what, you know, about this sitting in the sun type of thing. Um, and another Brisa then comes to say, right, Tanya, right, again, it's, it's exactly um, the same thing. And then it goes on to say, so they're saying that just as malacha is something that we get carried for in other circumstances like Shabbat, right? If you do certain prohibited actions, right? The Lama Temelachot on Shabbat, you will get carried. So also affliction relates to places where you would get carried. And what are those other circumstances? This is pigul and notar, right? Which means that if you, those are things that if you eat, remember those are the korbanot, uh, that if uh, notar is, you know, you eat it out of its time frame and uh, peak, and remind me what pigul is again. When the Kohen has the incorrect Thank you. Um, intent right, when he's going to bring intent. it. Right. Thank you. So, um, and if you eat that, those korbanot, then you get karate. So therefore, those also cannot be eaten on Yom Kippur. And then the Gemara does this really interesting thing where it goes through all these different types of forbidden foods and it basically tries to say, well, you know, we might have thought that forbidden foods, basically, you were allowed to also eat on Yom Kippur. But by doing this whole Midrash Halakha, that it does using the words of, you know, th- that it says, and then later on it says, right, which is, appears later on, um, in uh, which appears later, the fact that it uh is there that's in the same chapter chapter 16 verse 31 that it always comes to sort of include another forbidden food so they talk about tevel here right that's food that tights weren't taken from nevela right an animal that wasn't shechted or killed appropriately right just an unslaughtered animal carcass hulin non-sacred food truma um, and I, I just found it fascinating that, like, I don't know, when it says not to eat, you just assume it means not to eat. But yet the Gemara wants to go through a homey drash halachat to show, no, when we say not to eat, 
We mean all different types of categories of food. I don't have a good answer for why they do it or why they felt it was important because I feel it's like somewhat evident, but it's interesting to see them sort of work through it. I think it's to make sure that, you know, you know how we have these things of in order that the children should ask on Pesach, this is to stave off any questions. No, you can't have that. No, you can't have that either, right? In terms of, you know, you might think it doesn't count as eating and we're going to tell you that it still counts as eating. You can't do it on Yom Kippur. Um, I just want to comment that I have always loved this point um, about Inui. Right, that the fact that it's a passive thing, there's an, there's this obligation to have enoy, right? That we do afflict ourselves, but that doesn't mean you have to suffer from it. Meaning, there's a formal um, setup for what is going to entail enoy, and it doesn't. You never have to like make it worse for yourself to make sure that you have fulfilled the actual feeling, the sensation of suffering. And to me, this is so Jewish. And so, right, we've got, you've got right. halacha and it tells you what to do, but, and yes, we're talking about suffering, but not real suffering, meaning it's not about feeling bad. Listen, plenty of people suffer when they fast. I don't mean to minimize that. And the example of the person who's just given birth and who, who's suffering from not wearing regular shoes, she needs to wear her regular shoes in order to be, you know, to, to be able to contain herself. So, yes, I understand that these things can actually truly be very hard. But the Gemara will say, you know, oh, do you have to, like, if you're hot, do you have to go make, do you have to make yourself cold? Do you have to make yourself uncomfortable in your temperature? Do you have to, right? Do you have to make it an experience of actual suffering? And the answer is no. You have done it by fulfilling these these categories of behavior. And I just find that to be a very powerful comment on on the scope and breadth of halacha in terms of, um, I, I don't know, catering or acknowledging the human experience without making it, um, you know, on the one hand, it's about the individual experience. And on the other hand, no, don't take it too far. Shave um, Altasa, it's a passive one. No, I, I think that's all true. And then I just want to end with you know, the Gemara then ends with this very interesting discussion about how do we know that Inui means food? And it goes through some different examples, you know, where the word Inui appears or the concept of affliction and how it relates to food. But they finally talk about something about the mud, um, which I never thought about before. So they quote a pasuk, they start from Devarim, chapter 8, verse 3. <laughs> right who feeds you man in the debt in the desert right in order to afflict you in other words that there was some type of suffering that came about by eating of the man raviyami raviyasi right so what do they say about this to these two amarayim khanamar eno domam mishi yeshol papisalo mishi in lo papisalo the khanamar eno domam mishi of ochel the ochel mishi in ochel so one says that what, what made the man difficult? One is said is that it's like one who has bread in his basket and one who doesn't have bread in his basket. In other words, since with the man, there were, you weren't supposed to leave anything left over, this was a little difficult. Every day you'd have to go to bed knowing you didn't have food and you had to hope like that same miracle was going to happen the next day. And the other one was saying, you know, that it's a difference between when you eat, uh, when you see your food, um, and then somebody who eats and doesn't see the food, right? Meaning that the man could really sort of taste like anything, um, but it always looked the same and it didn't always look like what it tasted. So that also, un being unable to sort of 
see the food. Like there was something about the, the mun itself um, and its form that also was not necessarily as enjoyable um, as regular food was. And, and that sort of, uh, and that sort of, you know, caused some type of, um, of, uh, you know, of affliction. And then they get into an interesting thing about blind people not being able to see their food um, or that also you should always have your meal during the daytime when you can see what you're eating. But this whole point about, you know, I think we always think of the mun as a miracle. And I think some of what's being expressed here, and we see this all throughout the Midbar, all throughout the journey that B'nai Israel takes in the Midbar, is that many of the miracles that they experience are actually emotionally complicated. Um, and I think that's why there's always this tense relationship between B'nai Israel and Moshe. And I think here the Gemara elucidates that. The mun was complicated. Um, it didn't necessarily feel good. Uh, and, you know, for a variety of reasons, whether it's because you weren't sure it was coming again tomorrow, whether it was because it didn't visually, you didn't enjoy the food the way you should normally enjoy food, um, and that there was something suffering about it or afflicting of it for the people who actually got to experience that miracle. We have the advantage of 2020 hindsight. We know that every day they got the mun. They, going through it, couldn't be certain, right? They had to have faith and, and belief that the next day the mun would show up. And let's assume that they did, but they're still, they don't know what the next day is truly going to bring. We already know because we're after the fact. For sure. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talent Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.